Hey, everybody. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our Odd Pod podcast, a podcast dedicated to the odd, the macabre, and everything in between. And now I remember people will hear this. And everything in between. (laughs) Do you like, do you need a minute or? Nope, I think I'm here. Okay. (laughs) You just look like a little distracted over there. I had an egg hatching. Oh, okay. It's a weird, uh, weird euphemism for whatever. No, the real. I had an egg hatching in Pokemon Go. I hatched a scraggly thing. Oh, a scraggly thing. I'll look at it later. That's what my mom <laughs> told people when I was born. <laughs> I hatched a scraggly thing. And, yeah. And now you're here. Now I'm here, and I'm perpetually exhausted because that climb up from hell was, uh, was a doozy <laughs> just never recovered yeah well yep so what are we talking about this is part two to aliens <laughs> i will completely add or mad libit mad libit oh okay <laughs> all right uh from scratch no notes no nothing let's go there is space. In space, there might be aliens. And the Christopher end. Columbus started all of this. Christopher Columbus started all of this when he discovered Mars when he was actually trying to go to Venus. Right after he invented the telescope. Yes. Actually, he didn't do either of those things, any of those things. That we know of. Christopher Columbus was fucked up. That's not what the episode's about, but he was fucked <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, he was. <laughs> like... Just whenever I think that this one you- I know how fucked up he was, I find out new fucked up things about him. Maybe we should do an episode on Christopher Columbus. Like, be he macabre. would feed people's kids to his dogs. I'm sorry, are you wo- serious? Because like they weren't working fast enough or something. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Please tell me you're making that up. Why would I make that up? I don't know. No, I'm pretty sure he fed some kids to some dogs. Your next episode after this one is going to be about Christopher Columbus. It's not, though. Maybe the one after the next one. No, but I need to know about Christopher Columbus eating. When is Columbus Day? I think it passed. Or is it in September? I don't know. Hopefully it's in September. Then I'll do for the (laughs) September episode. For Christopher Columbus Day. Let me see real quick. You guys just bear with me real quick. Okay, Google. When's Columbus Day? Columbus Day in United States will be on Monday, October 11th, 2021. Okay, we'll look forward to that episode. What does she mean in the United States? Is there Columbus Day other places? Maybe it just means that there's not a Columbus Day in other places. Like everybody has a July. It's a national holiday in many countries of the Americas. Kind of fucked up. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move along from that. That's not what this episode's about, (laughs) but there we go, October 11th. So in October, I'll talk about Columbus. Well, I will be sitting on pins and needles until that day comes. Well, you don't have to do that. I'm going to do it anyway, but I need you to not do that. Fine. All right. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? You haven't really said anything, have I? You haven't. Um, I know we got a book in the mail. Do you know what that book's called? Something about cannibals. It's another cannibal episode. Kinda, yeah. This idea actually came from you in a roundabout kind of way. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. We did. You did tell me like a little bit. So. Go ahead and refresh me though. The beginning starts off with a question. What if I told you? But the fact is that you actually sort of told me in an earlier episode. Is it uh, maybe in did, our first episode? It was the first episode, the consensual cannibal. When I asked, like, when I was remind, hopefully reminding some people that we used to eat mummies. Yeah. So, what if I told you for hundreds of years, Europeans regularly consumed the flesh and blood of fellow humans? As like a meat source or as like medicine? Medicine. I knew that. Okay. That's we're about right. mummies, right? Uh, we're going to, among other things. Okay. So Europeans from all walks of life, from clergymen to royalty, would routinely take medicine in which the most common ingredient were human body parts. Right. So like at one point, we almost ate all of the mummies. Yeah. <laughs> So rich or poor, royalty or peasant, the practice was pretty surprisingly widespread. Yeah. I remember reading like a kid's book about it too. Really? Yeah. What was it called? Oh man, it was like one of those adventure books where you like go back in time. Well, Redfish, Bluefish, We Eat You Fish. <laughs> I'm going to find it. Okay. I'm going to continue while you do that. Yeah. So even though the specifics are different from place to place, this medicinal cannibalism peaked in Germany, England, Italy, and France near the end of the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking, Billy, there's no fucking way this happened. Well, treat yourself to this little quote from this dude you might have heard of named Leonardo da Vinci. You have my undivided attention. Quote, we preserve our life with the death of others. And a dead thing, ins insensate life remains, which, when it is reunited with the stomachs of the living, regains sensitive and intellectual life. For a second, I was like, I'm going to get that tattooed on my body. And then you just kept going. And I was like, I don't have a body part big enough for that. But I like it. As Europe was shaking off the intellectual power nap of the Dark Ages and heading into the warm, coffee-scented kitchen of the Enlightenment... The intellectual power nap. <laughs> they were still chowing down on human <laughs> remains as a means of maintaining homeostasis. Homeostasis, like the natural balance yeah. of the body. Is this the time where medicine was doing, like, the humors, or... Uh, I think we had moved on a little bit since the humors. We're past the humors? Yeah. Okay. I think the humors were more of an antiquity thing, right? Ish? I think we were probably just past this. Okay. This started around 1500s. Okay. We are like miasma. Miasma is when um, they thought like the air around you was the thing that was getting you sick, not germs. This is before germ theory. People wear scarves and stuff like don't let the air blow on you, or it'll make you see, it'll like oh, you'll get a cold or something. A little miasma going on. Okay. It's like 80 degrees outside, but it's September, so they're wearing like a jacket and a scarf. <laughs> it's so, stylish. Today it seems pretty fucked up, but it is well established on this show that early man was a big dumb idiot. <laughs> big dumb dumb. As such, they were convinced that smearing human fat. Drinking human blood or distilling human bones into a liquor were all excellent ways to promote healing. 
drinking human blood. I paused because I could tell in your face that you looked like you needed to say that you wanted to say something. Like vampires? Yeah. In fact, much like vampires. Okay. So to these early are idiots. Gonna, are you going to touch on the vampire? Yes. Like on the blood drink? Okay. Just wanted to make sure. To these early idiots, corpses had potent really mystical idiots. properties. <laughs> are you familiar with the term sympathetic magic? I feel like I have an idea of what it is. So sympathetic magic is like a type of primitive ritual that uses objects or actions that resemble one another or at the very least are symbolically associated. Yeah. Okay. For example, as regards our topic, powdered blood helped bleeding, human fat aided with bruising, skulls helped with migraines, and I don't think that was always the case like those are always like examples of what they use the things for yeah but you kind of get the idea well they used to do that when they thought food was medicine and like to an extent it is but they used to think that like walnuts would help with headaches because mm -hmm. you know walnut kind of oh. looks like a brain oh interesting yeah yeah that's sympathetic magic like what's weird to me is these are like notoriously christian people right like we had the crusades we had the inquisition uh -huh. Like, blasphemy is still, like, a really dangerous thing kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Like, the church pretty much still rules the world, but they're basically, pr like, practicing this ritualistic kinda sort like of... borderline witchcraft, right? Or what people would consider witchcraft. Like, in my mind, maybe they weren't thinking of it like that, but in my mind, it's, like, very clearly this type of sort of like sympathetic magic. I think what I'm like trying to say is like, if you were doing this today, talking about drinking powdered blood, I'm pretty sure Nancy from like around the corner would be like, witchcraft. Yeah, Nancy from around the corner with like her vagina scented candle. <laughs> um, anyway, for whatever reason, <laughs> for whatever reason, physicians and patients got it into their heads that people who had died violently made for the best ingredients. Yeah. <laughs> For example. How did you say that with a straight face? Practice. <laughs> For example, Paracelsus, a 16th century physician, wrote, could there be any more S's or S sounds in that fucking hell, wrote that after a hanging, after a hanging a person, Jesus, Billy, it's been a day. <laughs> Let me start over. For example, Paracelsus, a 16th century physician, wrote that after a hanging, a person's vital spirits would burst forth to the circumference of the bone. Okay. Human remains were considered potent because they were thought to contain the spirit of the body from which they were taken. The spirit was considered an actual part of physiology that linked the body and the soul. Okay. This is why blood was considered especially powerful because these early dum-dums thought that the blood carried the soul in the form of like vaporous spirits. But do you think that like that's partly where like the vampiric like legend comes from? Oh my God, I hadn't, I didn't think about that. Like blood is your life force. You're, like drinking their soul. Yeah. That's interesting because I read a book, admittedly it was an Anne Rice book. <laughs> It was kind of like a one-off that she did. I don't think this dude ever showed up again. Yeah. Ironically, he was an Italian named Speaking it was of Vittorio Italians. the Vampire. Okay. And he was like cursed. And as he would drink from people, he had to watch their souls fade as they died. So okay. like he could see their 
soul. Their soul dying. And no one showed him how to not kill people when he fed. So he oh, had... so he just. Anyway, that was. I... Oh, God damn it! It's it's relative. It's related. It is related. So the freshest blood was considered the most powerful, with the blood of young men or virginal women often being preferred, because obviously, right? Tell me, we're not talking about vampires. By ingesting corpses, you are basically supposed to gain the strength of the person or persons consumed. Kind of like when Romans, which I'm pretty sure would have been around the time of the humors, Mm -hmm. when Romans drank the blood of slain gladiators to absorb the vitality of strong young men. Big time vampires. I'm getting some. I'm getting like vampires and like witch vibes. I don't know. Yeah, like like the old witch that like consumes the soul of a person. I was like, you just offended like so many witches. No, I mean like you know like the dark Snow White movie. Yeah. With um what's her name in it? Kristen Stewart. No. I haven't seen that one. That's why I was like the Huntsman or something. No, this is Cinderella. It's just not Cinderella, to... Snow White. Uh oh, wait, wait, who's in that? I know what you're talking about. With the redhead? Maybe I don't know. She smears that. blood on her face. Yeah, yeah. She yeah, gets yeah. young again. Who was in that movie? Who was Snow White in that movie? Not Snow White. Who is the queen in yeah, that movie? Yeah, no, but I'm I, like I'm trying to think of who played Snow White because Redhead. She's in Holes too. I've seen Holes one time years ago. How many times do I have to say that? <laughs> How many times do we have to talk about Holes on this podcast? I love Holes and Will Smith. Oh, Will Smith, by the way, does not have a Twitter. So I cannot at him on Twitter. He's got a Facebook. But I went through and I added him on every Instagram post that you've <laughs> oh made. Oh my on God, a... I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking up who this lady is. So just give us a second. Stay tuned. Sorry. Uh, Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney. And who's Snow White? Uh, Monica Kina. Oh, I have no fucking idea who that is. Okay, well. I see. I do vaguely remember that movie, though. Anyway, the suddenness of death was thought to trap a person's soul within the corpse long enough for the living to benefit from its power. Health tonics made of human blood found favor during the Renaissance. While the blood was usually harvested from fresh corpses, it could also be taken from the living. Vampires. One such adherent to medicinal vampirism... (laughs) was 15th century Italian scholar and priest Marsilio Ficino. He encouraged the elderly to, quote, suck the blood of an adolescent who was clean, happy, temperate, and whose blood is excellent but perhaps a little excessive in order to regain the youthful <laughs> spring in their step. Is anybody just have, like, excess blood? <laughs> yeah. They mean, like, prepubescent women. I think they're talking about babies. Ooh. Or adolescent. I guess that's not quite a baby. That's like Elizabeth Bathory also. I'm getting like those vibes. This was around that time too, wasn't it? I have no idea. Well, maybe just after. Just seems kind of weird that they freaked out. Well, you know what? To be fair, she was going about it way differently. <laughs> so, often credited to St. Albertus Magnus, ironically... The patron saint of the natural sciences. I thought you were about to say the patron saint of blood. Another popular practice was to distill the blood of a healthy man, like rose water, 
resulting mm-hmm. in a concoction that, according to one 16th century text, could cure any disease of the body. I don't think that's probably true. No, as uh, somebody that I like to listen to a lot says, cure alls, cure nothing. Yeah. We'll talk about cure alls here in a bit. Um, by the mid 17th century, the belief that drinking fresh hot blood would cure or at least treat epilepsy was a belief. A so, thing. if somebody was like having a seizure, we just like spew warm blood into their mouth. I think it was like when they weren't <laughs> seizing, you know. <laughs> Quick. Um, it was also said to help with our old pal tuberculosis. TB. Yeah, which also is kind of ironically vampiric because TB and vampires, you know. The hell was that sound? That was my throat. Weird. Something's trying to get vampire. out. <laughs> it's the vampire. She's a parasite. <laughs> no. Around the same time, powdered blood was prescribed for nosebleeds or sprinkled on wounds in order to stop them from bleeding. So in order to stop a wound from bleeding, we're just going to throw some powdered blood on it? Yes. Would dirt not just... <laughs> blood bay. Blood bay. <laughs> Uh, now, if fresh or powdered blood wasn't your jam, you could make blood jam by following the recipe from blood a Franciscan jam. apothecary in 1679. Do you have the recipe? I do. <gasps> what is it? So, Richard Sugg's 2011 book, Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires. That's what we have, right? The History of Corpse Medicine from the Renaissance to the Victorians provides the recipe as follows. Okay. That's almost the book I have. I'm writing it it's down. It's an updated version of We're this book. It's the later. one I have. The first step was to take blood from persons of warm, moist temperament. Temp- yes, temperament. Such as those of a blotchy red complexion <laughs> and rather plump of build. <laughs> the next step was to let it dry into a sticky mass. Okay. After that, place it upon a flat, smooth table of soft wood. And cut it into thin little slices, allowing its allowing its watery part to drip away. When it is no longer dripping, place it on a stove on the same table and stir it to a batter with a knife. When it is absolutely dry, place it immediately in a very warm bronze mortar and pound it, forcing it through a sieve of finest silk. When it has all been sieved, seal it in a glass jar, renew it in the spring of every year. Well, I almost have all the ingredients for that. Yeah. I'm just missing my silk sieve. And blood. No, I've got that. Okay. I guess we both have quite a bit of that. (laughs) 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 Perhaps the most popular ingredient to find its way into the apothecaries of Renaissance era Europe was mumia. What is mummia? Or mummy. Oh, mummy. So we're going to talk about mummy now. Good. Even though we talked about it a little bit in the beginning, we're going to get a little bit more into it. I'm here for it. Let's talk about mummies and how we used to eat them. And I want to start with the evolution of the term mummy because it's actually pretty interesting. So I'm going to intentionally sidetrack myself very briefly. And talk about it. We're here for the history lesson. So in early Arabic medical writings, mumia referred to a type of wax or pitch found on certain Persian mountainsides. Story checks out so far? Because they used to dip their mummies in wax. Not dip, but you, you get it. 
In the 11th <laughs> century, it was used for a pitch-like substance that was produced in Egyptian corpses through the process of mummification. Okay. The meaning of mummia shifted in a big way in the 12th century when Gerard of Cremona, whoever the fuck that is, a translator, oh, a translator of Arabic language <laughs> manuscripts, <laughs> decli- defined the word as the substance found in the land where bodies are buried with aloes by which the liquid of the dead mixed with the aloes is transformed and is similar to marine pitch. It's a long-winded fucking definition, bro, for some black tar, like, you know, sticky. Tar, which is black. Yeah. Sticky wax, I don't know. Made from human liquid. After this point, the meaning of mumia expanded to include not just asphalt and other hardened resinous material from an embalmed body, but the flesh of that embalmed body as well. Okay. Persian physician Avicenna used the word mumia to refer specifically to medicinal bitumen. Bitumen is a black viscous mixture of hydrocarbons obtained naturally or as a residue from petroleum distillation. Okay. Nowadays, it's used for road surfacing and roofing. Basically, we now call the embalmed ancient Egyptian dead mummies because when Europeans first saw the black stuff coating these ancient remains, they assumed it to be this valuable bitumen or mumia. Is that why we started eating it? The word mumia became a double in meaning, referring both to the bitumen that flowed from nature and to the dark substance found on these ancient Egyptians. So yeah, I think so because the medicinal bitumen, that was like like, a thing that people used for medicine for like wounds and stuff. And then when they saw this, like black, whatever, like the wax they used to treat the mummies or the previous paragraph talked about it being like a... Because I'm pretty sure they used to like dip the cloth that they wrapped the mummies in mummies in and like honey and and that probably blackened yeah over time right i'm not sure yeah so i'm not sure exactly what they used but they used to dip it in like a wax or like honey or something that would get hard well it's interesting too because like the first mummies weren't ritually mummified right the desert just mummified them the sand they're good for that yeah and then i don't know like ancient ancient egyptians i guess found them and they're like hey what a great idea yeah let's make this we should make this a thing we should make this really elaborate you know what we should do we should make this like our whole thing like seriously we could build like big rectangles i mean triangles (laughs) i tell you what if they built rectangles would be nearly as exciting no it'd just be like a trailer right ye old trailer (laughs) the trailer of the dead the trailer of the dead patent pending (laughs) (laughs) gonna make that movie night of the living rednecks okay anyway is that not just a friday night in alabama it's true anyway friday night down at the creek down at wolf log down at the sonic (laughs) anyway in the 15th century the European demand for mummy grew exponentially. During this time... Which is a problem because there is a finite amount of mummies. Big problem because, in fact, there are a finite amount of mummies to be had. <laughs> During this time, merchants began plundering Egyptian tombs and bringing their lootings back to European apothecaries. I was just about to say, this became like a huge problem for the mummies. Yeah. 
the mummies had problems. Well, not just like are they stealing? They're looting and like raiding tombs of like people. Yeah, they're also stealing like all of their things. Which, granted, they're probably not using them, but in their culture, they are. Right. And you're just taking all of it. It's basically like if somebody went down to the cemetery and like dug up grandma. And took her fucking ring. It, it, it is grave robbing. Yeah, it's 100% grave robbing. Not only are you robbing the grave, you're taking the corpse. Yeah, like, and on, then guys. you're eating it. Leave room for Jesus. Anyway, in 1586, English merchant John Sanderson smuggled 600 pounds of mummy parts from an Egyptian tomb. This is a Six, fat mummy. 600 pounds. <laughs> Especially since they weigh like 20 pounds after being mummified. Yeah. So it must have been a big ass tomb. Surely there well, were multiple tombs. I was going to say, usually when a king or a queen died. Like all their slaves went with them. Yeah. But they didn't mummify them, did they? I thought they just like bricked them up. Who knows? Anyway, this is a quote from John Sanderson. Okay, John Sanderson. Quote. We were let down by ropes as into a well with wax candles burning in our hands and so walked upon the bodies of all sorts and sizes, some great and small. They have no noisome smell at all, but are like pitch being broken. For I broke off all the parts of the bodies to see how the flesh was turned to drug and brought home diver's head, hands, arms, and feet for a show. We brought also 600 pounds together with a whole body. They are lapped in above a hundred double of cloth, which rotting and peeling off, you may see the skin, flesh, fingers, and nails firm, only altered black. Not the kind of meat pies you're looking for. Nope. Some old meat pies, not the fresh ones like Miss Lovett, Mrs. Lovett makes. That's what she used to make them with. That's why they were the worst pies in London. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. Fresh never frozen, my friends. That's it. My band name on Rock Band was Mrs. Lovett's Meat Pies. <laughs> so in the late 16th century, surgeon... So he's just like out here like, yeah, I did that. Mm-hmm. Fuck that guy. Fuck you, Mr. Sanders. Yeah, Sanderson. No wonder his children turned into witches. <laughs> when I was in like the fourth grade, that movie scared the shit out of me. And you never watched it again? I don't think I did. I'm pretty sure it Maybe shaped, one more time it since shaped then. my childhood. I was such a little chicken shit kid, man. Movies yeah, would look at you. There were some movies that should not scare people, and they scared the fucking bejesus <laughs> out of me. Remember the Ernest movies? He had a Halloween movie called yeah. Ernest Scared Stupid, and it fucking freaked me out so bad. That troll was so scary. Scared stupid. When... There was a scene where like some kid rolls over in the bed and the trolls like laying next to it. They used to scare you. Yeah, it was so bad. Like if I rolled over in bed, I would not roll back over. I would just <laughs> lay in discomfort all night <laughs> because I knew if I rolled back over, that fucking troll was gonna be there. He's gonna turn me into a little wooden statue and put me in a fucking tree. And I wasn't about it. Uh, I accidentally watched. Scream for when I was like six. I've never been afraid since. Never been afraid since then? No. I'm a hardened child. I was I terrified know. of bathrooms for the longest time, though. It took me a long time to get over that. 
I don't know what happened, man. Like, I really, I don't know. Maybe it was my overactive childhood imagination. I've heard things. But I, <laughs> I was scared of everything. Everything remotely scary fucking fucked with young Billy big time. Now look and at now you. it's like, it's just nothing, man. Nothing. I'm broken. <laughs> my scare bone is broken. <laughs> Anyway, that's why I have to play scary video, except scary video games. Oh, yeah, you don't like those. All right, we have derailed. <laughs> yeah, we have derailed. It's okay. How you guys doing? <laughs> anyway, in the late 16th century, surgeon Ambroise Pere made the claim that mummy was the very first and last medicine of almost all our practitioners yeah. against bruises. How would you like to dig up like a thousand-year-old mummy? Just so you could grind it up into a paste because you like stubbed your fucking toe on the. Can bed. you imagine they're like, you know what? That's gonna be good for bruises. Why are we putting shit on bruises? Who fucking cares about bruises? Like, oh no, I have I bruised my arm. Let me put a mummy on it. What if they were like, you're gonna put this paste on your arm for four to five days? Yeah, and then they take, it, take off, it off. Take it off. It's oh gonna be God. better. The bruise is gone. Wow. Yeah, no shit, bro. Because that's how bruises work. I just like, they talk about bruises quite a bit and like treatment for bruises, but whoever, have you, you ever been to a store and it's like treat topical treatment, good for bruises? Do you think like um they are trying to treat like another condition that caused bruising, like a blood thing? I don't know, man. And bruises were a lot bigger of a problem than they are now. Maybe, but like. Or is bruises Maybe like... Maybe bruises just meant something different. I was going to say, like, is bruises... What they're describing as bruises, something yeah, like different. Is it a, more like a rash? Or like an amputation? Ooh. Oh, I bruised my leg and it's just gone. <laughs> Quick, get me some mummy for my bruise. Just mummy leg. Somebody get me some... Mu <laughs> just the whole leg. <laughs> it's a little creaky, but it'll do in a pinch. Just don't, don't Someone get me it. some mummy and a tourniquet. Don't I have a it. bruise. <laughs> I fell in the wood chipper and now I have a bruise. I don't know why it's like. Why is it a wood chipper? Why is oh, he? a wood chipper. Why I fell he... in the wood chipper. Why is he from like Maine or something? <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. I fell in the wood chipper and I bruised my leg. I don't think that's me. I don't know. I think it is. Regardless. Anyway. I've never been there. Why would I know? Speaking of Maine. Okay, listen, I'm so tired. I'm going to derail a lot. <laughs> stop what you're doing. Wait, finish this episode and then stop what you're doing and get the Pet Cemetery audiobook read by fucking. What's, a, what's that fucking dude's name? Who, who plays Dexter? Uh, Michael C. Hall. Michael C. Hall. Is the narrator for the Pet Cemetery audiobook, and he fucking does amazing. Okay, he has a great main accent. Back to this podcast. Side note: Aren't you proud that I knew who that was? I am really proud. I I could I was not gonna be able to think of him. Anyway, where was I? What was I talking about? Mummies. Oh, all right. By the 18th century, mummy was taken for bleeding, used in plasters against venomous bites. It, or joint pain? Did it work? I don't know. No. <laughs> I, I would guess not. But I think like if anyone felt any kind of relief for any reason, 
while they're taking this, they're going to be like, oh, this. Were they taking mummy and also <laughs> like cocaine? Probably. They're like, here's some mummy and some opium. One spoonful of heroin. A schmear of mummy. One schmear of mummy One on dollop toast. of mummy. Anyway, the market was so significant that there was also a very lucrative lucrative trade in fraudulent mummy. This, they were just making mummies at this point. Yeah, this faux mummy was made from the poor, mummy. criminals, and even animals. The poor, criminals, and animals. The they were mummifying the poor and selling them to people. We're just leaving them out on the roof. Like It's not that hard to mummify things. You stick them in some borax. Just put them under a box in someone's shed for however long. We have mummies you, here. Terrence. Yeah. Leave Terrence out of this. For those of you who don't know, Terrence is my mummified squirrel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We figured out he's a squirrel, huh? For a long time, I thought it was a rat. I thought it was a rat, And I too. got a good look at him. and He's definitely a squirrel. So mummy was also made into a pigment called mummy brown. Mummy brown. So I'm not even kidding. Okay. Wait. Do you have like... It was beloved by a group of English painters. I bet it poets, was. Poets and art critics known as the Pre-Raphaelites. Amish Kapoor probably will keep it to himself. The pigment could be found in some European pharmacies both as a medicine and a paint well into the 20th century. So they were literally making a paint color out of brown. mummies. Did Leonardo da Vinci? I don't know. But 19th century painters Eugene Delacroix, Sir Lawrence Alma Tadema, and Edward Byrne Jones were just a few of the artists who found the pigment useful for shading, shadows, and ironically, flesh tones. I hmm. Oh, this guy looks like about a mummy brown. That's not inherently racist at all. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't thinking of it like I don't know what color mummy brown was. You know, you should have looked it up. On discovering the source of the pigment, Byrne Jones is said to have been horrified. And no, felt, I can't imagine why. And felt compelled to bury his reserves of mummy brown. Well, okay. Good for him. So while mummy was a sort of cure, I need to, I need to know what mummy brown looks like. It's, I just, I... What does mummy brown look like? Who does number two work for? According to Wikipedia, mummy brown, also called Egyptian brown and Put more to Hey, the Pre-Raphaelites. All right. It's actually quite I don't know anything color. about them, but I'm assuming they came before the Raphaelites. That is very brown. <laughs> it's a lovely brown. It's more like a um like an oak tone. Yeah. Like a a wood. Uh uh slightly like a dark wood. Like slightly Away from walnut and more towards a burnt walnut. Uh, according to Google, it's between umber and burnt umber. <laughs> raw umber and burnt umber. Oh, raw umber and burnt umber. <laughs> it's cooked umber. It's just well. Yeah, it's medium rare umber. <laughs> Efficiently cooked umber. Yeah, it's like thoroughly cooked umber. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so while mummy was seen as a sort of cure-all... Human fat was also highly valued as a remedy for some ailments. It was rubbed on the skin to relieve gout pain. Gout. 
Uh, it was taken orally in powdered form to help with bleeding Ew. or bruising. Ew. It was also used in the form of plasters. Okay, I'll accept that one. Physician to several English and French kings, Sir Theodore Turquet de Mayerne, <laughs> often recommended a pain-killing plaster consisting of hemlock, opium, and human fat. Hemlock, opium, and human fat. Is the fat what made it a plaster? Could we skip the hemlock and just give them the opium and forget the fat? The fat probably made it sticky. Sticky icky. Yeah. <laughs> you need to go to bed. I know. <laughs> so in 1964, I feel like I'm jumping around. I'm really time traveling big time. Anyway, in 19... Oh, God. In 1694... You could buy fat made from people at drugstores in Paris, but you could get more by going directly to the executioner. In Munich, executioners would deliver fat to the apothecaries by the pound. Ew. This practice would last until the mid-18th century. The mid-18th century. That's gross. Apparently, body parts were sometimes thought to have some medicinal use as well. Check out this quote from something called The Gentleman's Magazine, published April 19th, 1758. I'm deceased. Quote. Quote. James White, aged 23, and Walter White, no relation, no, just kidding, his brother, <laughs> aged 21, were executed at Kennington Common for breaking open and robbing the dwelling house of Farmer Vincent of Crawley. They acknowledged the justice of their sentence, but laid their ruin to an accomplice who they declared decoyed them from their laboring work by telling them how easily money was to be got by thieving. While the unhappy wretches were hanging, a child about nine months old was put into the hands of the executioner, who nine times with one of the hands of each of the dead bodies stroked the child over the face. It seems the child had a win on one of its cheeks, and that superstitious notion, which has long prevailed of being touched as before mentioned, is looked on as a cure. I don't know to win it. Do you like my um 1758 newscaster yeah, voice? I liked it. Do you think this baby just had a little bit like... I feel like he had like a birthmark or something on his face, and they're like, touch the dead thing. What's a win? <laughs> Hold on. Where's my phone? Well, I just feel like he's probably red in the face. He had like a little Rocher show, whatever it's called. Oh, yeah. You know, like whenever you get like wind burnt in the cheeks when it's cold outside. Yeah, I'm smart. Oh, it's an abnormal growth or a cyst protruding from a surface, especially of the skin. So yeah, a little cyst face. Get a little birthmark. Like a little uh. And he grew up pustule. with pustule. He grew up with no lasting effects for being. No, they rubbed the dead person's hand and it immediately went away. Did it? Yeah. Did it? No, probably not. What like what? What made people continue to do that when it obviously didn't work for this child? Or maybe he grew out of it, and they're like, "Oh, yeah." I guess maybe it wasn't meant to be an immediate thing. Anyway, <laughs> I can't get over the voice. <laughs> thanks. You want to do it? You want me to finish the episode like that? Please no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> How distracting. So skulls were another body part that were prized for their healing powers. I'll say. Still trying to get my hands on one. John French, a 17th century English physician, 
had at least two recipes for turning skulls into booze. Booze? One recipe, he said, quote, helps the falling sickness, gout, dropsy, and stomach troubles, but also was a kind of panacea. What's panacea? I'm so glad you asked that. A panacea is like a catch-all or a cure-all. He claimed the other recipe, I might have pronounced that wrong, but I don't know, I've only ever read it. <laughs> he claimed the other recipe was better for epilepsy, convulsions, all fevers, putrid or pestilential, Pestuals. and passions of the heart. Oh. I don't. I'm glad that he had two different recipes. Me too. And one's really just not adds enough. credibility. Yeah, you it know? really does add credibility. Two cure alls. Well, like cure halves. Two cure somethings. One cures half of everything. And the, the other, other one cures, cures the, the other, other half. half. Yeah. Wonderful. King Charles II was an enthusiastic chemist with his own laboratory. Why is that at the end of that sentence? Why did I put that there? I'm talking about John French, and then after his quote, it says. King Charles II was an enthusiastic chemist with his own laboratory. I think I missed a like a return <laughs> button somewhere. <laughs> anyway, King Charles II is said to have paid 6,000 pounds to a local college professor to obtain a recipe for distilled powdered skull, which would come to be known as the oh, King's no. Drops. Oh, dear. And he would, what? The remedy was popular time. for an assortment of ailments, it was often mixed into wine or chocolate. Ooh. It's like, I guess it was like drops. I love Le Perry. <clears throat> chocolate and wine. Excuse me. In 1686, a woman by the name of, by the name. In the name. In the name. Of. In 1686, a woman by the name <laughs> of Anne Dormer wrote in a letter to her sister, quote, I apply myself to tend my crazy health <laughs> and keep up my weak, shattered carcass, broken with restless nights and you unquiet days. I take the king's drops and drink chocolate, and when my soul is sad to death, I run and play with the children. <laughs> what is it, my weak, shattered corpse? <laughs> <laughs> my... Weak, shattered carcass. Carcass. Okay. Um, why is Ann Dormer so goddamn dramatic? Why is that how I feel? I'm going to start texting people like this. <laughs> I apply when myself. my soul is sad, <laughs> I, I, I run play and, with the children. I run and play with the children. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. God I will only Ann. be referring to... I, I'm only going to talk like that to the people I work with now. I'm so sorry, y'all. Hey, what's wrong? Oh, it's just my weak and shattered carcass. It's just my weak and shattered carcass. My soul is sad. I'm going to go play with the children now. I'm going to run and play with the children. I can't run. I have a shattered carcass. Oh, I can't. Please excuse my shattered carcass. I hope my shattered carcass will not offend you. <laughs> oh, excuse me. I hope my shattered carcass does not offend you. Anyway. <laughs> so there was also a little substance. I believe we were talking about skulls, yes? Yes. The king's drops. Moss that had grown on skulls, a.k.a. usnia. Bless you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 
was thought to be an especially helpful treatment. It was pushed up the nose to stop nosebleeds. Plot twist, it may actually have helped. In fact, any powdered substance would have helped to stop a nosebleed in this way. Turns out Story you could shove out. flour up there and it would have helped. Little rag. Dirt. Ironically, medical cannibalism. Because you nibble on them. Cute. I know. And vamp. I just did that. I just came up with that just now. Really? Yeah. Ooh. And vampirism was becoming most widespread around the same time that reports of New World cannibalism began to circulate among Europeans. New World cannibalism. Yep. That's the title of this episode. New World cannibalism. Yes. Or definitely not about vampires. Yep, even at the peak of corpse medicine, two groups were being demonized for related activities that were considered savage and cannibalistic. One group were the Catholics, whom Protestants condemned for, among other reasons, their belief in transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is the belief that the bread and wine taken during communion Oh. are, through the power of Almighty God and his magic, changed into the actual body and blood of Christ. Now, it seems that if this were true, then JC would need to have a whole lot of body to facilitate <laughs> centuries of communion from his millions of followers. Just a little bit. Maybe he was ginormous. <laughs> or maybe he was Wolverine. <laughs> anyway, Protestants, the mainstream at the time, thanks to the Church of England, JC's looking like Swiss cheese at this point. They were, yeah, Swiss G's, us. <laughs> <laughs> they So anyway, Protestants, you know, in England especially, they were like the majority at the time because the homeboy wanted to divorce his wife, so he started his own church. Right, right, the right. The Church of England. They were, turns out, they were not about the transubstantiation. Perhaps even less surprisingly, the other group that they were condemning were the Native Americans. <laughs> Sorry, I roll. So the white devils of the time cultivated the negative stereotypes about indigenous American indigenous I can say words indigenous Americans that may or may not have suggested that these groups practiced cannibalism. In sixteen thirty four, Joseph Hall Joseph Hall, sounds like an asshole, <laughs> Bishop of Exeter, railed against bloody Turks, man-eating cannibals, mongrel troglodytes feeding upon buried carcasses, which is a little ironic considering what Europeans were doing exactly that at the time. I know. Cannibalism became synonymous for all things that were evil and taboo. Now, circling back to our dude Richard Sugg, who wrote the book I'm reading currently, author of Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires, The History of Corpse Medicine from the Middle Ages to the Falun Gong, wrote that it was an imaginative black hole that, quote, sucked in a variety of other transgressions or taboos and formed the boundary marker of a realm into which good Christians dare not enter. Like the back room in a video store, am I right? <laughs> or like a Kmart in the mid-90s. <laughs> Because they sold like romance novels. So yeah. We boycotted Kmart for a little while. 
<laughs> True story. That's hilarious. So using it as a symbol of all things bestial and base in human nature allowed New World cannibalism to be used as a dehumanization tool against the native inhabitants, justifying, at least in the minds of their oppressors, the slavery to which they were being subjected. People at the time knew that their favorite medicines were made out of people and their remains. And they were okay with it. So they were basically just big fucking hypocrites. I actually read one article that referred to this as mental transubstantiation. And I thought that was funny. I think I it's pretty hilarious. A bunch of hypocrites. Like the best, the most well-stated way of, of putting that. Yeah. But yeah, it's all about it's all about the hypocrisy, baby. History is just built on hypocrites. Yeah. Hypocrisy. <laughs> That's what we should call it. The hypocrisy was not entirely missed. In Michel de Montaigne, 16th century essay. Beautiful. On the cannibals. <laughs> uh, he writes of cannibalism in Brazil as no worse than Europe's medicinal version and compares both favorably to the savage massacres of religious wars. Well, so he's woke. What's up, Michel? Woke AF. Yeah, woke AF. What Europeans of the time didn't really understand was that for Native Americans, any cannibalism that did actually exist within their culture was eminently social and occurred only within a well-defined set of rituals. It was far from the senseless violence it was being depicted as. For example, if cannibalism was practiced, it was very often found as part of mourning rituals. Mm -hmm. These rituals were meant to return and reintegrate the deceased into the tribe. One example of this was found within the Wari of Brazil. In many South, many South American tribes, funerary cannibalism was part of a ceremony that lasted several days. During the ceremony, even the youngest members partook of broth, simmered with the flesh of the deceased as a means of incorporating the dead into the future of the tribe. Interesting. So planting their tribesmen into the ground seemed as horrific to them as human yeah. You know, gravy might seem to the rest gravy. of us. <laughs> it's all like within their culture, though. So, right. So it wasn't like this savage. It's not savage. To they're them. like like eating European explorers. You know, they're not the ones grave robbing and eating mummies. Right. You know? Even those tribes practicing aggressive cannibalism, uh, the captives of war were only consumed as part of a religious ceremony. This ceremonial cannibalism was sometimes preceded by several months of the intended meal being given special treatment and treated as an honored guest. Right. Um, alternatively, Europeans were able to consume the dead by labeling them as the other. The medicinal ingredients that were made from corpses did not come from friends or loved ones, but from the lowliest members of society. They were executed criminals, the poor, and the unknown. The animals. Uh wonderful example of this happened during the 17th century the english imported irish skulls that were taken from battlefields to be sold in pharmacies in germany Ugh. to the english the irish were like you know inferior that to garbage. them so yeah yeah Ugh. don't um, like that yeah as sug noted in the aforementioned book corpse medicines were often derived from bodies alienated in various ways from ordinary humanity Distant, most of all, from you, whether you were merchant, thief, apothecary, physician, or patient, 
In many ways, the Irish perfectly fulfilled this criterion in the minds of the English. It's just a small example of the fucked up acquisitions of materials for corpse medicine, but it is powerful evidence to our parallels between corpse medicine and otherness. Yeah. So Europeans ate strangers while the indigenous people of the New World ate friends and family. Right. And like, that's where we draw the line. Right. As you may know, eventually consuming the bodies or blood or whatever other humans, whatever of other humans, fell out of practice. Luckily, science continued to move forward, leading cannibal remedies to, to die out. The, oh, good. The practice would dwindle in the 18th century. This was near about the time Europeans began to regularly use forks for eating and soap for bathing. <laughs> Germ theory is coming into play. <laughs> yeah. But there were some late examples of corpse medicine. In 1847, an Englishman was advised to mix the skull of a young woman with molasses and feed it to his daughter to cure her epilepsy. Perhaps not surprisingly, he obtained the mixture and administered it with no effect. And then nothing and happened. And no one is shocked. Sweet skull. Pause for surprise. <laughs> Uh, the belief that a magical candle made from human fat, also known as a thieves' candle, could stupefy and or paralyze a person lasted into the 1880s. That's that witchcraft. And the sale of mummy as medicine in Germany lasted into the beginning of the 20th century. No. As referenced by its existence within a medical catalog at the time. In fact, the last known attempt to swallow blood at the scaffold happened in Germany in 1908. No. So, I mean, obviously we haven't moved on from using one human body to heal another. Well, now, nowadays we have blood transfusion, organ transplants, and skin grafts, which yes. are all excellent examples of modern medicine using parts of the body. That's different. While it isn't exactly the same thing because one is effective and backed by science and the other <laughs> is cuckoo bananas and backed by poor translations and idiocracy. Yeah. It is still interesting to see the parallels between then and now. I like that. Which part? The then and now. Yeah. Is it pretty cool? Uh, that didn't work, but this does. It's like we got there. Yeah. It's... We kind of took a stupid path, but we got there. <laughs> we got there in the end. We're working on it. It's like the interstate was closed, so we took some back roads. It took us a little while, but we got there. <laughs> the scenic route. That's all I got. Baby, that was wonderful. I felt a little disorganized, but... That's okay. I don't know. I felt better towards the end. Ah, but man. I'm also exhausted, so I think yeah. I just stopped I liked, caring. I liked it. I liked that I felt like I was knowledgeable in some Yeah, I areas. bet you could have told this pretty much this episode without having read the things I I read. didn't know a lot of it. I'm so interested. I want to know more. I'm going to read that book after you're done yeah. with it. It's So far, it's a pretty like easy read. Like It's going pretty well. Really? Okay. Just like, you know, my problem is I love to read. You know, I like to read, but I'm not one of those people who basically anything can keep awake. Yeah. No, you're, like, I always find you sleeping. There are people who talk about like, yeah, if I start reading a book, I'll, I won't sleep. I'll just stay up all night and finish it. Me? I'm so jealous. <laughs> I cannot. You know how many times I've hit myself in the face with a book trying to read, <laughs> playing video games, fall asleep. I wake up and my dude's just like running into a wall, <laughs> watching TV, just especially a, watching TV. Just a late sack of lazy bones. Done, so just a lazy bones. 
Just perpetually tired for no reason. I'm here. Just an old man now. <laughs> Start making those old man noises. I know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I loved it. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, one thing we forgot to do at the beginning of the episode, um, should you want to tr- try and find any of our links, you can find all of those at linktr.ee forward slash our OOPP. Sorry, guys. This is not yep. my spiel that I usually do. It's okay. You did good. Yeah, linktr.ee slash OOPP. Darren, uh, you can find our intro and outro music at darrencurtismusic.com. Uh, check out our Patreon. We got stuff on there. www.patreon.com slash ouroddpatreon. Um, and yeah, join us next week at the same time. Uh, we're in the same place, probably. Unless you want to switch it up. That's up to you. Yeah, that's your prerogative. But as always, we are the Boneses, and we are out. out.